At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Okay, can I have my next three guests up, please? Neve, Cara, Steve, Rose. Yeah, oh, we'll get started, forget him. Yeah. Rolls, move it, Rolls. Come on. Okay, welcome, everyone. Take a seat, please, those of you who are still here. And uh, we'll get started with the, uh, the next panel. So we're moving more into policy. There was quite a bit of policy in the last one, but this is, uh, this is going into heavy-duty policy. The real intellectuals. <laughs> The great broad-shouldered policymakers of the world here, and uh, if you want to pick up your microphones, you can introduce yourself. We'll start with you, Neve. Okay, thank you, David. It was the intellectual, at least in respect of myself, it was the intellectual heavyweights in the last session. My name is Neve Eastwood. I am executive director of Release. Uh, Release is a charity. We're one of the oldest drug charities in the world. We were set up in 1967 in West London. We buy the, the bohemian population that Alex mentioned in the previous panel. And we provide legal services to people who use drugs, addressing a range of issues such as homelessness, housing insecurity, debt, financial, broader financial issues such as access to benefits, and so we support about a 1,000 people a year through that and also provide legal advice around the drug laws. Um, and really, it's the experiences of the folks that we work with that reflects our campaigning work. So we work a lot around decriminalization, access to harm reduction programs. So we've worked on the lock zone, crack pipes, all of the things that were talked about in the previous session. And we've also done a lot of work highlighting the inequity of the drug laws and how it impacts disproportionately on people of colour and people living in deprivation. Yeah, so if any of you, any of you ever get accused of uh, any kind of drug crime, then release is absolutely the place to go. Release knows more about the drug laws than the Home Office. Not that that's difficult, but... but the measure of anything. <laughs> My cat knows more about it. <laughs> okay, sorry. On, Cara... My name is Cara Levan. I'm here um, representing the chapter of the book called Challenging Stigma and Changing Minds as I'm part of the Anyone's Child Families for, Families for Safer Drug Control campaign. We are families who have been adversely affected by drug policy. Many of us are bereaved, myself included. My partner died eight years ago from a crack and heroin overdose. He relapsed after years um, of abstinence leaving me single parent to a nearly two-year-old. 
Um, so now I work with anyone's child um, and tell the stories of the other of my my own story and the other families by making short films, which go out on social media, where we try to personalise the statistics. So we talked about the increasing number of overdose. It's over 110 people a week now in the UK die from an overdose. That figure goes up every single year, and um, I realised that showing the bit describing my partner, describing his personality, talking about what an incredible person he was and all his strengths and characteristics, showing pictures of him, humanising him, was a way of counteracting what um, was described in the last session as the moral sidestep. So we take the stories, like we're the opposite, we're the antithesis of Leah Betts' family, essentially. Um, We're families who've been affected, but we say we need to change drug policy rather than we need to come down harder on people who use drugs. And uh, over to you, Steve. Hi, I'm Steve Rolls. I'm Senior Policy Analyst for Transform Drug Policy Foundation, which is uh, also a charity. Not the oldest drug charity, but we've been a charity for about 15 17 years, something like that. We were established in the late 90s with a, with a pretty straight-up mandate to challenge the war on drugs, the whole prohibitionist ethos, and try and find alternatives to prohibition. So we very much explored what the regulation of drugs would look like after prohibition, and we've produced a lot of reports and books and literature on that, and we've advocated on that both in the UK and around the world. And it's been quite an interesting journey because we've moved from doing advocacy back in the, ni- in, in the 90s, now having stalls at Glastonbury and you know, going on marches and being a lot more activist-oriented, to more recently working with governments. So we've actually, you know, because we actually did the detailed work, you know, what would, how would you regulate these drugs in a, in a sort of public health, human rights framework... When governments actually came to the point where they kind of caught up with you know, the, the drug law reform movement and decided to m- make that move, they've contacted us. And so we, we worked as consultants in Uruguay and subsequently on their cannabis reforms and subsequently in Canada and Mexico. And more recently, the wave of reforms in, in Europe. So I've been working in Malta and Luxembourg and uh, this year in Germany and elsewhere. So it's an exciting time moving from kind of campaigning to advocacy as we've kind of winning the argument, although not uh, in the UK yet. Well, we're winning the argument, the public argument and the, the media argument, but not necessarily winning it with the idiots in, in government. But um, we are making progress. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what I do. And I, if my voice sounds a bit croaky, I'm kind of coming out the back of a rotten cold, so I apologise. And I'm also flying on Lemsip and Sentia. <laughs> So uh, don't, don't mix your drugs, don't, polydrug use is bad, kids, don't do that. Thank you, Steve, thank you. Uh, so, so Neve, we've already touched on some of your pioneering work in relation to the, the racial disparities in how the drug laws are worked out, but why don't you elaborate a bit on what you did and, and the implications of it, please? Yeah, so as I mentioned in the introduction, the work we do really reflects the experience of the, the people that we work with and for, so people who use drugs, people who are affected by the drug laws. And back in the late, well, no, early 10s, we had a group of young people who came to us from local estates in Hackney who were just being stopped and searched over and over and over again. I remember one young man, you know, teenager, coming in with a block, like a block of stop search forms. And I just want you to imagine what that's like, you know, not knowing if you can get from your home to the school in it without being stopped and searched by police. It's quite traumatic. And so they really were, were 
highlighting to us how drug laws were driving these experiences, that, you know, cannabis, smell of cannabis, as Alex has already mentioned, was really one of the, the, the major grounds for a stop and search. And so what we wanted to do was, 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 you know, prove that, show the evidence. We shouldn't have to. And I think that's something that happens a lot in this field. We see it. We know it's happening. But until we have the statistics, often it's not taken as seriously as it should be that those experiences are denied. And so what we did was with the London School of Economics is we did freedom of information requests across the country and we produced our first report which was called The Numbers in Black and White which showed at that time that black people were six times more likely to be stopped and searched compared to white people despite using drugs at a lower rate. And you know, we also were able to show that throughout the criminal justice system that people of colour, particularly black people, were treated much more harshly for possession of drugs with white people much more likely to get an out-of-court disposal, so a non-criminal record, as compared to the black population who have been found in possession. Remembering that most people are not found in possession after a stop search. It's got a success rate of around 20%. So that's four out of five stops, resulting in nothing being found. And I think also what's really important to remember is that government statistics regularly show us that black people are less likely to use drugs compared to white people. So this really is evidence of kind of a racist approach to our drug laws. And roll forward to 2018, we did the same report again. The same thing, same pattern was evidenced with, at this point now, nine times more likely to be stopped and searched for drugs. And just, I think, for black people... And I think one of the things that really interests me under lockdowns and COVID was the scale of stop and search that happened during that period. So in March 2020, we expected stop and search to basically disappear. We were all indoors. There was no crime really going on. And in fact, what we saw in the first two months of the first lockdown was stop and search increased by roughly 50 to 60% each month. 70% of that was for drugs that had nothing to do with cannabis, or with, sorry, with COVID. And it was particularly focused on young black people in London and in communities that were suffering the highest rates of COVID and the worst effects of COVID. So again, imagine that being physically stopped at a time when you're being told to stay away from each other, to not come in contact so yeah um, do you have you seen anything other than getting worse over the last 30 years you've been going so i think what i've seen is you know the work I, I have to say alex started this whole kind of academic analysis of it in his brilliant book from 2009 the the political economy of drugs yeah. and he, he really kind of highlighted at the beginning of that and then we built on that work and I think what we've seen is much more attention to this issue, which I think is important. I think we've seen that at a government level as well. But what I think we haven't seen are solutions. And you I mean, we constantly say you have to decriminalize drugs. And going back to the chapter that we co-wrote in the book, we have to take away the, it's not enough just to remove the criminal sanctions and replace it with civil sanctions. We have to stop the policing of drugs, particularly for personal use. Um, and the only way we do that is to have a no-punishment model, and that's what we advocate for in the book chapter. There are those who say drug policy is intrinsically racist, and those who say, well, it's just the people who enact the policy who are racist. I mean, is this part of systemic racism in the police? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a tool of oppression. I mean, we are very, very, very clear that drug policy reform will not address systematic racism, but by decriminalizing and by regulating through the lens of social and racial justice principles, which we can talk a little bit more about, 
we are removing those tools of oppression. And I think we're seeing evidence from US states, particularly that have decriminalized and then moved to regulation, that the arrest rates fall dramatically for African-Americans and for Hispanic uh, communities. I mean, the reality is this is one of the biggest drivers within criminal justice tools that allows for the surveillance, the harassment, and the criminalization of black people across the world. Okay. Um, so, Cara, tell us what your, your vision is for how we can help people, like your husband and others who've suffered. Um, I'd like to see a world where drugs were legally regulated um, along the lines of the work Steve's done and the models that are described. Um, I know certainly sort of living with someone who was addicted to banned substances meant that the amount of the resources that we had in terms of seeking help were hugely limited and we were it was more concerned with shame and stigma and hiding what was going on than there was being able to reach out um, and ask for help appropriate help and that was absolutely crippling and then the shame and stigma on top of the just the lack of resource for help means that there's just an endless amount of unnecessary punishments. Um, also, for when we're talking about festival use or recreational use, just lots of the anyone's child families um, have lost teenagers to MDMA overdoses. They've gone out celebrating their GCSEs, taken a dose that was way too strong, and then that's the end of it. So we'd be saving all kinds of lives if young people could know what they were what they were taking and could take a safe dose. The other thing about prohibition is that it means we can't actually truthfully educate young people about mm. drugs and education is absolutely key and comes back to the mm. question that was answered in the first session mm. that education has to come hand in hand with legal regulation you can't promote you can't market you can't we're not about selling drugs in a free-for-all it's about saying you can have a good time with this amount but this might happen to you this might happen to you and you can mitigate what might happen by doing this this and this so i just and Carol, you're from Bristol, where they're going to set up very soon, I gather. So I was talking to, so where are the people from the loop here? Yeah, you're telling me at the break that uh, by the end of this year, Bristol will have the first city drug testing. Are you involved I, I, I in believe that? tomorrow Bristol is launching the harm reduction initiative citywide, where lots of, I think, the police and lots of the, the, the Bristol's night times are, Carly Heath, has orchestrated this and lots of the venues are launch, launching a huge harm reduction campaign which probably the loop is part of acknowledging that people are going to use drugs especially over the festive pe period and how do we keep them safe how do we keep them um, how do we stop them from unnecessary overdose and unnecessary excesses and policy drug poly drug use like steve is doing <laughs> woohoo <laughs> Um, can I just can I Please, come in on that? Steve, come so on. Uh, when I was saying that uh, you know it, it, things can look a bit bleak in terms of things like cannabis regulation, and there were some comments on that in the in the previous panel. Yes, we're not. It's not on the immediate horizon in the UK that cannabis is going to be legalised. Although things can move surprisingly quickly and, and unexpectedly, and I think Germany and Luxembourg and Malta, they, it wasn't on the political landscape in any of those places, and then suddenly it was, and then suddenly it happened. So don't be too surprised if things move quite quickly. But even though things can seem to be quite stuck in the UK. And we have this sort of awful 50-year-old monolithic piece of legislation, which is, you know, lost in, lost in the mists of time. And really, it's it's creaky old crappy piece of legislation that needs to be repealed and replaced. A lot of cool stuff is happening in the UK. It's just not coming from the top it's not coming from westminster it's coming it's coming from sort of local level reforms local police local service providers 
local campaigns, local activists, local NGOs like The Loop. You know, we've seen drug testing, 2016, The Loop, you know, pioneered drug testing at festivals, and that's gone from strength to strength. We're within a hair's breadth now of getting our first supervised consumption space, formally sanctioned one, but there's already been several informally unsanctioned, uh, inf- unsanctioned ones across the UK. Diversion programmes. It's not decriminalisation as, as we might want it, but a lot of people now who are arrested in possession aren't getting criminal records and they're getting diverted into health programmes. So it's, it's not what we want ultimately, but it's progress. People aren't get, a lot of people aren't getting criminalised. That's in 14 police authorities across the UK now. It's progress. So things are happening, but a lot of it is grassroots-led, activist-led, um, locally-led, NGO-led, civil society-led, and even, even local government-led or local police-led. And, uh, you know, I, so I would just encourage all of you to participate in and support all, all of those local activities. Like the, the, there was a comment about the um, diversion schemes going on in Lewisham and elsewhere. It's not where we need to be, but these are important steps and they show that there is a popular mandate for change and they show that change can happen and the public want it and that the politicians are not in line with where the public are. A poll after poll shows that people support these reforms, but there is this weird sort of ratchet effecty sort of bidding war, tough on drugs, sort of punitive populism between Labour and the Tories at the moment that is holding us back. But hopefully that dam will break at some point and, and progress can, can accelerate. What's your take on this? Uh, let's make cannabis class A again. Then I mean that was absolute horseshit. Let's be honest. I mean it was. It was yeah, but what driving it? Well, I mean, Who I, are the horses? I, I don't know. I mean, it got a few Tory sort of reactionary Tory police and crime commissioners a headline in the Telegraph. Uh, our lovely Home Secretary then repeated it and got her got a, a few sort of reactionary tabloid headlines. But it was. I mean, it was pretty much universally shot down by anybody with half a brain, even even quarter of a brain. That it was clearly so utterly preposterous. Um, it was impractical, it was it, you know anti-scientific, it was disproportionate, it ran against the tide of history and science and evidence and common sense. It was clearly utter nonsense. It was an own uh, goal, in other words, you think? Well, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't think it did her any favours. I mean, you yeah. look at polling, 50% of the country now or thereabouts, support legalisation. It was about 30% like 10, 15 years ago. So there is, and it's, you know, about 60% of people support decriminalisation. In London, support for legalisation is about, six. it's over 60%. And so, you know, and that probably explains why Sadiq Khan and other London politicians are getting on it now. Once the public opinion is in favour of change, politicians, you know, you do get some principal politicians, but generally politicians, they'll, you know, they like votes and they like popularity and they do things that the public want. You know, now the public want that, not through any leadership of politicians, I should add. It's all come from civil society and people like drug science and release and transform and anyone's child and so on. Now that the public is getting supportive of that, I mean, that was what changed things in the US with cannabis, for example. Once you had a majority of the voters, Republican voters, let alone Democrats who have been, have been a majority for years, once you had a majority of Republican voters supported legalisation, any kind of political will to oppose it just evaporated. And now, now so we've had this cascade since 2012, and there's 21 states now, almost half half the country. I mean, there's, there's now there was nowhere with legal cannabis 10 years ago, in, and when when Uruguay and Colorado and Washington legalised cannabis 10 years ago, 
there was nowhere with legal cannabis in the world. And the Netherlands kind of half sort of semi-legal, but not really. And now there's half a billion people living in legal cannabis jurisdictions. Half a billion. So, you know, and change can happen and it can accelerate. And there is a, that is what's happening now with cannabis. But now those changes are, you know, that's opened up the discussion of the drugs. I went, I went to Utrecht this year for the opening of the world's first MDMA shop. And I went to uh, Colombia this year and was debating with senior politicians and working on a bill in the Senate on uh, cocaine regulation. So these are much more challenging in many ways than cannabis regulation because they're obviously more risky drugs. But the same logic applies. Drugs aren't, aren't going away and, you know, you don't want to leave them in the hands of unregulated, you know, uh, criminal gangs. They, they need to be responsibly regulated and we need to be having that discussion about how to do that in a sensible way. And that's, that's the work that Transform's done over the years, very much aided and abetted by, by release and drug science and so on. It's beginning. Those, those debates are now moving on. And we do a lot of the dry policy work. We don't do the frontline legal stuff that Neve does. We don't do the, the human stories. Well, we do, actually, because anyone's child is actually part of Transform, so we kind of do. But, you know, I, I personally don't do that stuff. Anyone's child does this brilliant job of it. But, you know, the momentum is there, and we can... There is definite room for optimism. Thank you, Neve. Um, one of the other things we've seen since the inception of the 71 Act is a, a lot more people in prison for drug. Do you want to just comment? I mean, most people may not realise quite how this problem we have with our prisons overflowing is all due to drugs, and you've been highlighting that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the issue of, of drugs in prison is one that, that is... It's a particularly great example of why drug prohibition will never work, isn't it? I mean, the fact that you've got this very secure building that's surrounded by guards and drugs are awash within prisons is quite, a, quite an achievement, really. So, but yeah, I mean, the, certainly what we've seen over the last sort of, <coughs> so, I mean, since the 1970s is an increase in the prison population, much of it driven by drug legislation, but much of it also driven by sort of the, the intersection between problematic drug use and, and poverty where people often will have to commit offences in order to feed and heat their homes, or feed themselves and heat their homes, but also to, to purchase the drugs that they need to use in order to deal with trauma that they've experienced. And I think it's really important that we, when we talk about drugs, we recognise the, the motivators for drug use. And Val picked up on this in the previous session around the, the pleasure, the fun. And we, we know that. You know, most people who use drugs aren't at risk of, of any real harms except the harms that are present in the unregulated market. But, you know, most of them will use pretty safely. They'll have a great time. They, you know, will dance and fall in love and, you know, deal with the stresses of everyday life. But then there's 10%, it's estimated, who, who will use drugs for other reasons. And these are the folks who are dependent. Um, and often that is to deal with trauma. That's a really rational response to things. You know, if you think about it, every day across this country, we give out diamorphine, so heroin, in hospitals to deal with physical pain. And there are hundreds of thousands of people across this country who have suffered emotional pain, so whether that be bereavement, abandonment, um, sexual abuse, physical abuse as children. And so using drugs is a really rational response to those problems. But because of the fact that they can't get access to the drugs that they need to deal with it, or they haven't been given the tools to deal with the trauma that they've experienced, they often will engage with the 
the criminality in order to sustain that. And that's really contributed, I think, to our prison populations. And further to that, you may come back to the point about drugs in prison. You may always be in a bit glib, but it's estimated that about 15% of people who go into prison use drugs there for the first time in their lives, and that's where they develop a drug dependency issue because of the trauma of prison. I mean, these are traumatic places that don't fix problems. They warehouse so-called problems, human beings who have problems. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, a particular issue with that. But also we have this problem of uh, drug testing in prisons, which has done nothing other than make <laughs> people use... Other substance, yeah, totally. I mean, so for years there was drug testing of, of um, heroin and then along came synthetic cannabinoids. Uh, so many people know that as spice, which is actually nothing like cannabis. It's, it's argu arguably. Um, and I, mean, it, it, I remember someone describing it. I mean, that cannabis kind of links, and you'll know this better than me, so sorry. But cannabis links into the brain the receptors so that the cannabinoid receptors, it's like a key going into a lock. Whereas with uh, the synthetic cannabinoids, it's like wrapping wire around that receptor and it's really tight. But it, because of drug testing in prisons, they, people shifted. It's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but people shifted towards the synthetic cannabinoids and that just created greater harms. But I actually think, I mean, drug policy reform is one answer to that. I mean, the prison population here, you may know, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but you I mean it's about a thousand people go to prison every year for possession, and that's pretty shocking in itself. Um, again, the, the, the racial disparities are huge, but there's probably around another 10,000 or so who are in for supply and production offences. So maybe about you know, 86,000 in the prison population. But I think that's part of the answer is drug policy reform, so legalizing drugs. But we often say it's not about the drugs, and it's often about social policies as well. And so what we need to do is we, alongside drug policy reform, if we want the real pro you know, solutions to the problems, is we need to be advocating for you know, economic and social policies that will lift people out of the, the experiences that cause all of these damages. And education. Let's get trauma informed, trauma counsellors in schools from a really young age. Mm -hmm. Like, let's deal with those problems. That's the type of drug use, that problematic drug use that we could prevent. We're never going to prevent drug use. I mean, it's too much fun. But can I just, uh, just one last question about prison, sorry, but it's, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe Steve wants to come in. Do you think, is commercializing, uh, sort of the privatization of prisons part of the problem, do you think? Well, that's, that's a really great question. We did a piece of work with the guys who directed The House I Live In. Has everybody seen The House I Live In? Yeah, if you've not seen it, it's brilliant. Oh, it's got to see it. The, the best, House I Live In, yeah. Yeah, one of the best drug policy t movies ever made. I mean, there's a great scene where they talk about how drug policy has been used to isolate communities. And it's just one of the most powerful sort of breakdowns of why we are where we are and how racism and controlling populations who live in poverty as well is such a driver for it. But we did a piece of work with the director at the time. He was over doing the screening and he was like, because obviously prison populations are, are you know, it's, it's, it's well known within the discourse in the US. But we looked at the, the numbers here, and actually we have a higher percentage of, of uh, private prisons in the UK. Percentage, percentage, remembering that we don't, uh, it's not quite as uh, the prison in, uh, industrial complex that it is of the US, but we have a higher percentage. And there's, you know, you just, you know, the, the oddity of things like, what is it, Serco and, and G4S being involved in things like prisons and drug treatment even, but also then being involved in cannabis growing and things, you know, like it's, it's, it's just 
it's the, yes. the, the absolute contradictions and hypocrisy of all of this. Just to get a sense of this, uh, the scale of what we're, we're talking about, because one, one of the things we did at the 50th anniversary, working with Drug Science and, and Release, and was to basically look at some of the data for, for over the last 50 years, and it was surprisingly hard to get a lot of this data, because the data collection, you know, if, it, if you have a kind of ideologically driven war on drugs, it's kind of like self-justifying. You don't need necessarily much evidence to, to support it. So the, the evidence, particularly in the first half of the 50 years, is, is very poor. Um, but we, we trawled through the data and we found that there have been three and a half million criminal records have been issued under the Misuse of Drugs Act. So, you know, these are non-trivial numbers, three and a half million. And we found that people have been sentenced to almost a million years in prison. A, a, a million years in prison. You know, so, so the, the actual, the, the criminal justice you know, hammer that's been used is all this talk about, oh, we, it's, you know, the war we never fought and, you know, it's time we crack down. It's like, well, a million years in prison, it's not nothing, is it? You know, three and a half million criminal records, you know, not zero. And what have we achieved? You know, nothing. Worse than nothing. You know, the idea of, the whole idea of it was to reduce drug use, to, ultimately to create a drug-free society. And clearly drug use has been rising steadily since 1971 and there's been some ups and downs but on the whole use has been rising and you know we haven't reduced drug availability drugs are more easily available they're cheaper and stronger than they've ever been so even on its own terms it's been a total disaster and that's before you get into all the the horrors of you know public health disaster of, of drug related deaths and and the sort of trauma of you know without millions of years in, in prison and all the other awful consequences and that even that doesn't even begin to something that um that david referred to earlier that you know it's not just in the uk our drugs come from colombia and mexico and afghanistan and they're transited through west africa and through, through the balkans you know our, our illegal drug markets here are devastating communities around the world you know we, we think we've got a disaster with drug deaths in the uk it's ten thousand drug war related fatalities a month in mexico Ten thousand drug deaths Drug, no, that's violence, not drug deaths. Drug, drug war violence fatalities a month in Mexico. And that's just one country. It's on the front line. It's particularly bad. But the scale of the carnage globally is absolutely shocking. And they are fight, fighting our drug war. They're, you know, the drug use isn't a particularly big public health problem in Mexico or, or in Colombia. It's growing, but it's not nothing like that. Their, their problem is a security issue to do with the cartels and the violence and the in, insecurity and undermining governments. But the, the drugs that they're growing there is, is, are the drugs that you know, people are snorting in toilets in Parliament. And so don't forget that this isn't just a domestic issue. The Misuse of Drugs Act, it doesn't just devastate the UK in its implementation. It has a much, much wider and horrific impact across the whole, the whole planet. Thanks, Steve. Carl, just get back to to the sort of personal, I suppose. Um, how did you find getting help? Um, getting help from a doctor or, or from wherever you a professional. I'm just interested to know, you know, what the ex your experience we, of having a, we just didn't, a partner. We who didn't was, do it. I mean, he, my uh, partner, had been in rehab for years and mm -hmm. had a practice of recovery and knew the steps and and knew to go back into the steps when he relapsed. But in terms of the medical side or any professional support outside of the steps, there was nothing. It wasn't an option. And we had a baby, so 
the, the risk you've got of, in, of law enforcement being involved means social services are involved. And I didn't have a um, problem with addiction, but the, there was a chance, you know, my baby would have been taken away. And my partner actually was a fantastic dad, although he was relapsing and there, there were lots of problems around the substance misuse. You know, he, if that had been, if he'd been able to maybe get a safe supply, I wouldn't have liked to be with a partner who was using heroin, but I would have lived with it and he could mm -hmm. have regulated himself and he, he could have, mm. he could have got help. He could have got the right treatment, but that just, mm. it just wasn't an option. Mm. But was it because you, you sought it and it wasn't an option or was, I mean, I, so I wasn't, I'm not, or, was it that they rejected? It didn't feel like it didn't feel right. like a viable choice. It didn't feel mm. like, and I think he'd had past experiences of trying to talk to doctors and being mm. struck off. He was actually doing a master's at the time. Was told by his um, his lecturers that he would be mm. he wouldn't be allowed to continue his course. So really? yeah, so um, that that's was, not legal. It was in arts psychotherapy, so maybe because it was a psychotherapy course, they there was some kind Can of. Point? Um, yeah. I just, what you're saying really reflects kind of all of the experiences we see every day on the helpline that we have. I mean, just it's the tentacles of this thing, isn't it? It's not just the risk of criminalization. It's the risk of your, your, your kids being taken away. It's the risk to your employment, to your education. I mean, it, it actually pervades so many areas of our lives in a way that's so damaging. We had, I had a client once who had two kids. And she smoked crack in the evenings. Now, that might sound quite shocking to you all, but she didn't use any other drug. That was the only drug she used. She got the kids to bed, and she would have a pipe in the evening. But because of the stigma around crack use, she felt like she needed to get help. And so she went to the drug treatment center, and the first thing they did was they called social services, and they did an assessment of the kids. Now, it was fine in the end because the kids went to school every day. They had great friendship networks. They were doing well at school. She looked at them beautifully. But the first thing, and she, her trust in the drug treatment service, absolutely destroyed. Absolutely destroyed. She did not want their support. She wanted nothing to do with them. So I think that's, you know, just really reflects so much of what we see around high drug policy or drug criminalization and drug prohibition just is so per pervasive. Well, we've seen this recently with the case of Child Q, haven't we? And I mean, it's just truly kind of perverse, but apparently it's driven by the, the idea that you're protecting children. Uh, do you want to comment on what you're doing? About yeah, I mean, strip searches are probably one of the most um, abusive powers that the police have. And do you all know that in this country you can carry out a strip search without being arrested? It is a continuation of a stop search. That is quite shocking. And... We are currently doing analysis on strip searches. So Child Q, I think you're all aware of the case, the young girl in Hackney who was, uh, teachers suspected her of having cannabis on her, called the police. They carried out an illegal strip search. There was no parent or appropriate adult present during it. But even the fact that they were carrying out a strip search for the smell of cannabis, I mean, I find that just one of the most abusive forms of state control. And we've looked, as I say, we're about to publish a paper hopefully in the next month or two by Amal Ali, who is one of the authors in the book and is fabulous, one to watch for the future. And we, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I, I mean, it's, it's, in the, it's in the thousands every year, but 90% of those searches are for drugs. And if we think about this as coming from stop search, that is not about disrupting the supply 
chain. We know the majority of stop searches are for possession of drugs. So this is largely about the police exercising their authority in a way that is incredibly <laughs> abusive and incredibly traumatizing for people who go through it. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised in, in the summer there, there was a, some sort of pre-celebration of the loop in Bristol that I was speaking at and uh, I was, was speaking on a panel with, with a teacher and I was amazed that a lot of schools now have police in the schools. And yeah. I kind of find that truly bizarre. And, and, but the justification seems, again, you know, it's, it's, got a, kind of just, it's, it's a sort of false justification. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, there's a brilliant organization in Manchester which runs a campaign called No More Police in School. It's kids of colour, so I'd really um, advise you to check that out. We'll be doing some work with them around London, and we've written to the mayor with liberty, <laughs> asking him to, to, to pull police out of the schools. He hasn't agreed to that so far. And these police are based in the schools where you have the kids who are most likely to experience stop and search. So it's not just that they feel that they can't get from A to B. It's when they get to B, the people who prevent them from getting to A and to B are in those schools. I mean, it's incredibly traumatizing for these kids and doesn't prevent anything. Yeah. It's performative policing. It's performative politics. Totally. I mean, a lot, so much of drug policy, and I think Alex was kind of alluding to this in the first half, so much of drug policy is... Politicians, I mean, they, they know the data is terrible. They know the outcomes of drug policy historically are, are terrible. And they don't want to kind of do a, a responsible evaluation, look at the outcomes and look at the data. And So they have to continuously do this sort of performative, punitive, populist sort of theatre. So, and, yeah. and that's why you get dogs in schools and police in schools. And yeah. It's why... When they 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 were trying they they were trying to introduce uh, diversion schemes in the drug strategy and they they kind of did but they called it tough consequences they couldn't even call they didn't couldn't even bring themselves to call it diversion they called it out of court tough consequences out of court tough consequences swift action no, it was just I can't it's just just, just, just utter, utter nonsense and, and, and they were like and if you do, and if you do it twice we'll take your passport and we'll tag you and we'll but we'll make you go on a course again because the course didn't work the first time yeah, so doing, you can go do, on the course do, again do it it'll again. work the second time and if it doesn't work that time it'll work the third and, time and, you know and you're thinking what take passports take people's driving license. Well, it's almost like you're making this up but in a meeting it's like oh yeah that is actually what happened they just like um need something tough passport let's take the passports and, and, they, and then they, they actually then do it I mean, completely thoughtless completely devoid of any reason or evidence or it's extraordinary that this stuff just sits entirely outside of normal policy making processes did you see the case of the guy who got the football banning order today the first one oh, no, for cocaine oh, no. so there's a number of conditions to this but it's just it speaks beautifully to the nonsense but there's a number of conditions including him rel relinquishing his passport when england is playing away but the other thing that he has to do is he is not allowed to go within two kilometers of a football stadium during whilst matches are playing. So on game day, he lives in London. <laughs> Can you imagine two kilometers from any... I mean, he's basically not going out on game day. So that's, that's because of... He was, because he was fine. He, he used cocaine at a stadium. So possession and witnessing, possession of cocaine, that was it. That's, but these, that's what we have in, in, yeah. in lieu of sensible evidence-based yeah. policy. Yeah. There's this endless sequence of ridiculous sort of 
tough sounding enforcement measures or you know they'll set up a new agency and call it something tough sounding mm. you know, I can't even remember what they, 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 they or they rename the agency every three years and it's just it's, it's idiocy joint it's, combating yeah. drug unit yes yeah combating yeah. drug and it has it's actually still a combating drug unit it still has mm. that kind of mm. war on drugs language yeah. you know Quite. in there from yeah. the start well the good news is we've got you guys fighting the corner of rationality. Uh, and, and to give you credit, I think, I guess, first you released, you did manage to challenge the legality of sniffer dogs, didn't you? Oh, we didn't win that one. Oh, you did not? No, sorry. But there's less of them around. No, they're back, they're back. Oh, we, what oh. we did do is we worked with the British Transport Police and they had a very sensible person in charge there at the time who agreed that it was not in their interests to be putting out sniffer dogs to detect drugs. And their specific dogs are trained specifically to detect a specific you know, explosives term uh, drugs. And so he agreed at that time to instruct all of his officers to stop doing it. And he did, they did, they did. We saw it once and we rang him and said, there are dogs on Old Street Station. He went, that's the Met Police. I'll get on the phone to them immediately. But yeah, no, I'm afraid we didn't. But we've won other things. Okay, well, I'll, and I won't go on to talk about drug driving testing because that's too embarrassing again. So it's a general principle. It's, it's about trying to control behavior through fictitious uh, fears about harm. So, opening up to the uh, audience now, any questions? Uh, Nicholas Moore. Given, as the panel rightly identified, how important shifting public opinion is in enacting policy change, to what extent are we utilising the media to shift that public opinion? Certainly, in anyone's child, we've got a large group of families, a gro- untragically growing group of families who are available to give media interviews. So whenever, uh, you know, we've done all kinds of magazines, every newspaper, we've done most of the talk shows. So whenever possible, we will, one of our families um, will be willing to appear to talk. And certainly that's definitely, I think, put a squeeze on families who are bereaved and who usually are uninformed and are in shock saying we need to stop children taking drugs. So it's much harder, I think, for media to get somebody of that mindset on when anyone's child is out there and there are families who've had the exact same experience but will have an opposite answer, solution to the problem. So I would say that's that's one thing that, one, that our campaign's done. Hi, my name's Tom. Thanks for the really illuminating discussion. When you talk about safe level of dosage, I'm just wondering how much that would vary across the population. So for something like MDMA, do you think that changes by a factor of 10 between individuals or a factor of two? Can you put a number on it? I mean, that, that's going to differ for different drugs. I think the, the point with regulated drugs is that you will have information on the packaging of what the dosage is. You'll be able to control your dosage. And when you get it you from the vendor, they can give you advice that is tailored to your needs, much in the way that the loop will give people advice on harm reduction, safer use based on the ind- on the individual. So risks are always there with any drug use, but they can be managed and controlled, and obviously they need to be tailored to the individual. I think the whole point about the regulation debate is that it enables that advice to reach the target populations. And the problem with prohibition is you get anonymous powders of unknown strength and purity with no advice from a street dealer who is not going to is not a qualified drugs person or, or pharmacist who can give you the advice you need so you, you can never reduce risk to zero but under in a in a regulated public health guided model the right information can be linked to the right drug products and dosage and you can manage and mitigate 
many of the risks that exist with drugs or that are created by their illegality. Is that a reasonable answer? And, and I think just to add on the illegality, a really great example of this around MDMA, for example, is back in the late noughties, we saw the purity in MDMA plummet quite dramatically, which led to an increase of methadrone, which some people will remember. But one of the reasons why the purity decreased was that there was a very effective law enforcement operation in Southeast Asia, in Thailand and, and Myanmar around that border, where the trees that produced the precursor drug saffron, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Was they chopped down all the trees. So the precursor that allowed for the drug to be produced basically vanished. And so that's why we had this really low purity rates, the arrival of a new drug. Move on 10 years or so and the brilliant work of the loop, which is uh, looking at the purity rates. One of the reasons we have really high strength purity of MDMA now is because there is a designer version of that precursor. So it's actually the, the law enforcement directly led to these really high, high levels of MDMA in the market. Yep, now the perverse effect of prohibition, yes. Hello, my name's Leanne. Um, I'm a student at Keele University and I'm from Stoke. My question specifically is for Kari. I'll try not to get too much into the preamble, but the reason why I'm particularly eager for drug policy reform is the medical advancements, especially with trauma and addiction. One of my favourite studies was the MDMA-assisted therapy uh, with alcoholism. But I did grow up with someone quite close to me, a family member who had challenges with drug addiction. They eventually went to prison. As a 13, 14-year-old, I was visiting this family member in prison, so I saw the impact. They got out of prison. They worked really, really hard to turn their life around. They even got a letter from the royal family at one point commending them you know, for their work and in the community. Unfortunately, this didn't last long, and they went back to that, that lifestyle, that group of friends that, you know... What would your opinion, and that of the charity, be in terms of the support that should be offered by the state, by local health authorities, or by authorities such as the police themselves, or people who have overcome that, you know, that, that trauma, that lifestyle, that, that, you know, life of crime, I, I guess, to, to stop that kind of regression and going back into that way of life? I'd love to have a 100% answer to that, <laughs> but I think that the problematic substance use is the symptom, it's, it's not the cause. So people who are using problematically have, and there's a lot that's been going on, we've talked about trauma, and you can stop your use, but that doesn't necessarily mean you've, ha you've managed your trauma or you've dealt with the things that were driving you to use, and that's an ongoing thing that you have to keep that you're, that's probably a lifelong journey. I mean, everyone, I think, has stuff they could look at and things they can improve in it. But the people who've kind of fallen off and used substances to manage their their mental health challenges, they're the ones who are more, more at risk of sort of being dragged back into that cycle. So I think it's just a growing mental health awareness, improving treatment, honest education, and looking at ourselves and asking, why am I attracted to this drug or that drug? Why does one person really need cocaine, the other one wants heroin? And we can't have those conversations behind the veil of prohibition, but they're conversations we badly need to have. And I, I could just add quickly on the treatment service, because we provide advocacy for people in treatment around their rights. And I would say there is sometimes a risk of saying that the, the sort of opposite of criminalization is public health. Public health can be as paternalistic and controlling as the criminal justice system in many type ways. And there are some services, not all, who 
will really focus on surveilling these groups, will require people, say, to turn up every day to get their medication. None of these are conducive as a treatment environment. A treatment environment has to be somewhere people want to be and where they're respected and where their rights are realised. So I think there's a real problem in this country around the type of treatment we provide and how paternalistic it is. And that, I think, is evidenced by the fact 50% of people who are dying from drug-related deaths of opiate-related deaths, haven't been in contact with treatment services for at least the last five years. That speaks volumes as to the problems within the system. True. Yeah. Hi. Um, so I just, first of all, wanted to say thank you for the really insightful expertise you guys sort of like gave and your opinions and all of that and your experiences. Um, so my question is relating a little bit more on like the social, racial disparities in the whole drug misuse across the world really but mainly within the UK so as we all know the black community and you know ethnic minority communities and the lower social class and economic class are predominantly affected by the misuse of drugs and obviously like the really harsh searches that police carried out and everything and all the trauma that comes with it and we also know that a lot of the families within these communities sort of rely on the drug industry to make a living. We know that because of how the system is built against them. And so I was wondering, like, obviously, the work that all of you do, all the experts in here do, is to sort of combat the sort of, like, politics and, and, and the whole, like, yeah, let's fight drugs, whatever, you know, regulating it, et cetera, et cetera. But how is that going to leave all those families that sort of depend on the industry and all the individuals that you know have built a life around it like where does that leave them because it's like okay well you've stopped the use of drugs for many people now like what about those that you know they literally have nothing else to their life except this this is all they know this is what they grew up in because of how the system was built around them so I just kind of whether it's opinions or you know actual facts that you had I just wanted to know like where do you see them you know fitting into this whole picture on the war of drugs and the misuse of drugs basically I'll just, yeah I'll just, I'll, I'll just answer a little bit of that and then I'm gonna have to go to get a train oh, no, you gotta go this is the last question don't <laughs> okay. worry okay um but just that a lot of that use is exploitative so it's not necessarily that these families want to be in that industry but they're forced into it and they have no other option there are 50,000 children being used in county lines by criminal gangs for want of a better term at the moment and so I think that saying my, my instinct would be that don't say oh, let's let's make sure they still have a living it, it would be it would be look at what what are the circumstances behind those families and especially children that are in those circumstances. Yeah, I mean, just to add to that, I, I totally agree with what Cara said. I mean, obviously you need social and economic support and you can't generalise across that whole population. We're talking about a whole array of different scenarios and situations and individuals. But it's really interesting, some of the social equity developments in uh, cannabis reform in the US, for example, where they've, uh, they give priority licensing to people from impacted communities. They provide support and technical support for people to engage in the emerging markets. And... Um, in New Jersey, for example, 70% of the tax take, the state tax take in New Jersey for cannabis, is reinvested in impacted communities. 70%. I mean, you know, this is in America. It's pretty amazing. For, in, in New York, it's 40%. And we're talking about tens, this will be tens, if not hundreds of millions over, over a number of years. That can actually make a real difference. So 
I think what we need to do is, as we move forward on legalization, and this happens at an international level as well, there is a development dimension to this. You know, people who are marginalized drug crop growers in Colombia or Afghanistan or, or you know, Morocco. We need to be thinking about them and planning, advocating for them and involving them in the conversation as we develop our drug policy reform as well, because you don't want to replace an iniquitous, harmful, illegal market with an equally iniquitous kind of, you know, neoliberal capitalist market afterwards. So absolutely. And if, if you look at some of the literature that Transforms produce, we do talk about social equity stuff, we do talk about sustainable development, um, we do talk about the need to manage the transition of marginalised populations from illegal drug economies into a post-prohibition world as well. So I direct you to that literature, I'm happy to talk to you more about it afterwards as well. And we have also written a paper on it, it's called Regulating Right, Repairing the Wrongs, and it is that kind of transitional justice approach. And I totally agree, it's not the answer for everybody, but I think the type of legalization we, we are advocating for is really important. We can't, as advocates, talk about the harms that are done com to communities through the drug war, whether they be people who use drugs or whether they're people who are over-policed and over-criminalized, without looking at solutions that, that repair those harms. So I think that work is really developed in the U.S. And it's a surprise to us. I think we expected the U.S. to be kind of the hyper-commercialized model. But we're actually seeing economic models that are much fairer much more just and much more closer to the ground. And, and so maybe drug policy reform is also an opportunity to look at different economic models. And it's those changes in the US reflect the fact that these are significantly grassroots movements are driven by civil society rather than top-down. So whilst we can rue the fact that the governments aren't leading on this, in some ways there are benefits to having it as a grassroots-led movement. And in fact, a lot of the social equity uh, programs in the US, I was over there recently, they're actually terrified of federal legalization because they're worried that when federal legalization opens up the market to, you know, big corporate capitals and big alcohol and big tobacco are investing heavily in, in cannabis now. They're worried that those social equity programs and small and medium-sized operators and social equity operators are just going to get completely annihilated and it'll all get consolidated into something yeah. a bit more like alcohol and tobacco. We have three or four big companies dominate transnational markets. So we, we, need, we need to do things differently. But regulation of currently illegal drugs gives us an opportunity to do things differently. And that's, we need to be having those discussions now. The window is now to make sure we, that, we do it, that we do it properly. Well, thanks, Steve. That's a great note on which to end. And can we give the panel a, a round of applause? Thank you. Very much.